Chapter 15, What Came Down the Chimney Christmas Eve is real quiet. Like Freak says, you could hear a mouse fart. Which, even if it is a stupid joke, makes Grim smile and shake his head. Freak and the fair Gwen have supper with us, and we're all trying to pretend like everything is normal, and nobody says a word about Killer Kane getting out of prison. The fair Gwen is wearing this dark red silky blouse and a long black skirt that almost touches the floor. And her waist is so small, she looks like one of those Christmas ornaments, the kind that makes a tingle bell sound when the branches move. Freak is all dressed up, too. He's wearing this tweedy new suit jacket that has patches on the elbows, and Grimm says all he needs is a pipe, and he'll look like quite the professor. No tobacco, Freak says. Nicotine is a toxic waste of time. Just the pipe, Grimm insists. You don't have to smoke it. Don't get him started on bad habits, Graham says. Maxwell, pass the mint sauce. Mint sauce is one of Graham's specialties, and he'd be amazed how it improves everything, which is why I've been keeping it close by. Anyhow, the food is the best. You can't beat Graham for Christmas or Thanksgiving or birthdays, and we all eat till we're fit to bust. Except the fair Gwen makes sure Freak doesn't eat too fast. You'd think I was starving him, the fair Gwen says. Please, sir, more gruel, he says, holding up his plate and making a funny face where his tongue sticks out sideways. And Graham laughs so hard, she has a coughing fit which makes us all shut up. After supper, we sit around like you do, admiring the tree and talking about how lucky we are not to be homeless. And Grimm starts telling these old stories about when he was a kid and they got lumps of coal in their stockings. If we are lucky, we got an apple core, he says, or a few orange rinds. Now, Arthur, Graham says, you never got a lump of coal in your life. You're right. We never even got a lump of coal. Can you imagine? My father couldn't afford coal, so I'd write the word coal on a piece of paper and put it in our stockings, and we'd pretend it was a lump of coal. That's how poor we were. The fair Gwen is laughing to herself and shaking her head. Graham says, How can you tell such lies on Christmas Eve? I'm telling tales, my dear, not lies. Lies are mean things, and tales are meant to entertain. And so we all sit there acting polite and listening to Grimm make up stuff no one would ever in a million years believe. And all of us have a cup of hot chocolate and a piece of Russell Stover candy right out of the box. And then it's time to pass around a few of the presents. Graham has this rule that you can open one on Christmas Eve and you save the rest for morning, which can be tough deciding what to open first. Graham always starts it off because, like he says, he's really a kid at heart and he can't stand to wait. From Graham, he gets this woolly sweater that buttons up the front and he acts surprised, even though he's got about a hundred just like it already. Then Graham opens her present for me, which is a bracelet made of shells from beaches around the world. And she right away puts it on and says it's just what she wanted, which is so like Graham. If you gave her an old beer can, she'd act pleased and say it was just what she wanted. Then Freak opens his present for me. And even before he gets the paper all the way off, he gives me this thumbs up and says, cool. It's a gizmo that looks like a jackknife, but really it's a whole bunch of little screwdrivers and wrenches and even a little magnifying glass. I'm pretty sure Free can invent stuff with it if he feels like it. Graham gives the fair Gwen this scarf that just happens to match her blouse, and everybody goes ooh and ah, and then I finally decide what present to open. Right away, you'd know it was something Freak did, because the box isn't square, it's pointed at the top like a pyramid. And instead of regular wrapping paper, he's got Sunday comics taped all over it, and it's driving me nuts trying to figure out what would fit inside a pyramid-shaped box. Freak seems like he's just as excited as me even though he already knows what he put inside. Take off all the paper first, he says. There's a special way to open it. Real careful, I peel off all the paper, 
And the thing is, it's not a pyramid-shaped box he bought somewhere. He made it. You can see where he cut out the pieces of cardboard and taped them all together. And written on the sides of the pyramid are these little signs and arrows. Follow the arrows, he says. The arrows point all over the place. And I have to keep turning the pyramid around until I finally get to this sign that says, Press here and be amazed. Go on, Freak says. It's not an explosive device, silly. It won't blow up in your face. I press the spot on the pyramid, and all of a sudden, all four sides fold down at the same time. And I'm looking inside the pyramid. And just like Freak promised, I'm amazed. The young man is a genius, Grimm is saying. And I don't use that word lightly. Grimm is right about that, because Freak has the whole thing rigged with these elastic bands and paper clips, which is what made the sides unfold all at the same time. And inside is this little platform. And on the platform is a book. Not a normal book like you buy in the store, but a book he made himself. You can tell that right away. It looks so special, I'm afraid to pick it up or I might ruin it. What I did was take all my favorite words, Freak says, and put them in alphabetic order. Like a dictionary? Exactly, Freak says, but different, because this is my dictionary. Go on and look inside. I open up the book the way he asked, and the pages smell like ballpoint pen. It starts with A, just like a regular dictionary. But as Freak said, it's different. A. Aardvark. A silly-looking creature that eats ants. Arg. What the aardvark says when he eats ants. Abacus. A finger-powered computer. Abscissa. The horizontal truth. You don't have to read them all tonight, Freak says. Save some for tomorrow. I gotta tell you, though, you're gonna flip when you see what I did with Aziz. This is the best, getting Freak's dictionary. Everything else is extra. I figure it will take forever to fall asleep, because my head is full of stuff. Grimm and his written-down lump of coal, the pyramid with a special book inside, and how fat, wet flakes of snow were falling when the fair Gwen towed Freak home in his American flyer wagon, and the way he was pretending to boss her by saying, On Donner, on Dasher, on Guinevere, and she's telling him to shut up or she'll leave him outside until he turns into a snowman. Which must be why I'm dreaming about a little snowman who looks like Freak. The snowman keeps saying, Cool, cool. And when I wake up, I can feel the cold coming into my bedroom. Which is weird, because it's always warm in the down under. With the furnace right next door. I think I hear the wind right there in the room. Except it's not the wind. Someone breathing. Someone who rises up darker than night. As big as the room. And puts a giant hand on my face and presses down. Don't say a word, boy. He whispers. Not a sound. I try to move. I try to shrink myself back into the bed. But the hand follows me down. The hand is so hard and strong, I can't move. And it feels like my heart has stopped beating. It's waiting to see what will happen next. I came back, he says, like I promised. Chapter 16, A Chip Off the Old Block Once on the TV, this dude hypnotized a lobster. Maybe you saw it. He touches a lobster and it freezes. It can't move. That's sort of what happens to me when his hand clamps over my mouth, like I'm paralyzed and my head is empty. And all there is in the world is that big hand and his cool breath like the wind. So this is where the geezer stuck you, huh? He whispers, down in the basement, out of sight, out of mind. I still can't see his face. He's this huge shape in the room. Everything changes now, he says. It's time I got to know my own son, who had his mind poisoned against me. He makes me sit up and shushes me to make sure I won't make any noise. Making noise is the last thing I want to do. 
because I don't know whether or not Graham ever bought that gun he mentioned, or what might happen to him if he tries to use it. Graham's bad dream about Grimm getting shot with his own gun seems pretty real right now, and I don't want to be the one to make it come true. I know what they told you, he says. It's all a big lie. You understand? I never killed anybody, and that's the truth, so help me God. By now I'm sitting up in the bed, and he's making me put on my clothes. And the weird thing is, none of this is a surprise. Somehow I always knew this would happen, that he would come for me in the night, that I would wake up to find him there, filling the room, and that I'd feel empty. I'm so weak, I can hardly put my shoes on. Like when you wake up and your arm is still asleep and you can't hardly make it move. That's what I feel like all over. Numb and prickly and as light as a balloon. Like my hands might float up in the air if I let them. This'll be an adventure, he says. You're going to have the time of your life, boy. Okay, we're leaving and not a peep out of you. The bulkhead door is open and you can see the stars. Some people think the stars look close enough to touch. But Freak says, the sky is like a photograph from a billion years ago. It's just some old movie they're showing up there. And lots of those stars have switched off by now. They're already dead. And what we're seeing is the rerun, which makes sense if you think about it. Someday, the rerun will come to an end, and you'll see all the stars start to flick off, like a billion little flames blown out by the wind. This way, he says, quiet as a mouse. There's snow on the ground, not a lot. Enough to cover the ground. I can tell how cold the air is, but I can't feel it, even without a jacket, which I didn't have time to put on. The cold doesn't matter. Nothing does, really. Not Grim and Graham, or the old stars in the sky, or Freak and the fair Gwen. They're all just make-believe. This dream I was having for a long time, and now I'm awake again, and he's still filling the room somehow, even though we're outside. The lights are out at Freak's house, and I'm thinking, the stars clicked off. And I don't even know why I'm thinking that. It's like a dead voice in my head or something. We're under a streetlight when he says, let me look at you. He's got these big eyebrows that make it hard to see his eyes, and that's fine. I don't want to see them. Looking at those eyes is asking to have a bad dream. My, my, he says, checking me out. Will you look at this? It's like I'm looking at an old picture of myself. You really are a chip off the old block. You know that? I don't say anything, and he reaches out and touches my face real gentle, as if he'd never heard a fly. I say, boy, do you know that? Answer me now. Yes, sir, I say. Everybody says so. Christmas Eve, he says. You know how many Christmas Eves I've been deprived of my own blood kin? Now is that fair, to do that to a man? Lock him up for a crime he never did? He's waiting for me to answer, and I say, no, sir, not fair. That's over and done now, he says. We're starting fresh. Just you and me, boy. That's how it was meant to be. I'm standing there under the streetlight, and it's amazing how quiet it is, like everybody went away or died. The quiet is almost as big as he is. He's as tall as me, only wider everywhere, and for some reason, maybe because we're not far from Freak's house. I'm thinking this weird thought. He doesn't need a suit of armor. No. And he doesn't need a horse or a lance or a pledge to the king or the love of a fair lady. He doesn't need anything except what he is. He's everything, all rolled into one. And no one can ever beat him. Not even the brave Lancelot. He's squinting around. His eyebrows are furrowed shadows. And he says, 
You know what I think of when I see a neighborhood like this? Hamsters is what I think. That's how these people live, like hamsters in cages. They have their little wheels to run on, and that's what they do for the whole of their lives. They run and get nowhere. They just spin. I stand there. They poison you against me. I know that, he says. Give it time. You'll see the truth. He starts walking fast, and I walk with him, like my feet already know where to go. We're cutting through the side streets and heading down to the pond, all cold and white and frozen. Tomorrow morning, a bunch of kids will take their new sleds and skates out there and probably lose their new mittens and scarves and get yelled at by their moms and dads. But tonight, the pond is as empty as the moon, as empty as my head. Once a car goes by real slow around the pond, and I've got the strange feeling there's no one at the wheel. He hooks his finger in my shirt collar and makes me duck down until the car goes by. The car passes and you can't see through the dark windows, and you can hear the snow crunching under the tires, squeaky and frozen. We're invisible, he says, making me stand up. Now, now, isn't that a kick in the pants? My feet already know where we're going. The New Testaments. There are a few lights on in the old buildings, and you can see some of the windows are cracked. It looks like a knife cut against the light, and he's saying, You know about Mary and Joseph? How they sought shelter in Bethlehem? How the baby Jesus was born in a manger? I try to nod, and the funny thing is, even though I'm not cold, my teeth are chattering, so it's like the rest of me is freezing, but my head hasn't noticed. That's what we're doing, seeking shelter, he says. Except this isn't exactly a manger we're going to. No, sir, I say, it sure isn't. He touches me real soft on the back of the neck and says, I didn't ask you a question, boy. Rule number one, don't sass your old man. I make sure my mouth stays shut. We're coming up on the testaments, and they look almost pretty, with the new snow coating the roofs and making the yards clean and white and soft. You can see where an old bike handlebar is coming up through the snow and shapes of other things left out. And even the old car up on blocks looks new like it might take off into the air without any wheels. I know where we're going, even though he doesn't tell me. The door opens before we get there, and Loretta Lee is standing in the light, and she's saying, Iggy, come look what the cat dragged in. He says, say hello to my boy, Loretta. Ain't he a chip off the old block? Then we're inside, and Iggy's there bolting the door behind us and closing the shades. And Loretta, she's wearing this real slinky red dress that looks like it might fall off as she sneezed. She's saying, mission accomplished. Hey, Kenny, I knew you could do it if anybody could. Iggy says, watch your mouth, Loretta. I do believe you've been drinking, my father says. Has she been drinking, Iggy? I thought I made myself clear. Hey, it's Christmas Eve, Iggy says, and he sounds real nervous. A little punch, what can it hurt? A little punch, Loretta says, and her voice is slurpy. That's all. She's wearing these fake eyelashes, and they're coming loose, so her eyes look almost as blurry as a red mouth. I know because she keeps flapping her eyes at me and smiling, so I can see where the lipstick got on her teeth. Iggy says, She's okay, Kenny. You got my word. Oh, right, Loretta says. Turned over a new leaf? Preacher Kane turned over a new leaf so there's no booze for anybody on Christmas Eve, even in our own house where a man is his castle? Oh, shut it, Iggy says and he makes Loretta sit down on the busted couch, where she kind of leans over and waves at me. Wink, wink. Bring me and my boy some food, my father says. We've been out in the cold for eight long years, and we're hungry. Aren't we, son? Yes, sir, I say.
Iggy goes out into the kitchen to fry up some hamburgers, and we sit there waiting, not saying anything. Loretta is snuggled up on the couch, passed out with this dreamy look on her face. I ate the greasy hamburger, even though it can hardly stand to swallow. And Iggy is fussing around like it's such a big deal having Kenny Kane in the house. And it's hard to believe he's the same Iggy who's the boss of the Panheads, this motorcycle gang that strikes fear into the hearts of everybody, including the cops. Then Loretta wakes up and stretches like a cat, yawning so you can practically see right down her throat. And she says, I guess I needed that. Then she giggles, hiding her mouth. I guess I need a lot of things. My father wipes his mouth with his folded up paper napkin, and he ignores her and looks at Iggy and says, you ever do time, you could be a cook. Iggy gives this nervous, <laughs> like, wouldn't that be fun, being a cook in prison? He says, anytime you want, I'll show you that place I told you about. My father stands up. Now is good, he says. He looks right at me. Come on, boy. Chapter 17, By All That's Holy. There's a back alley between the tenement buildings. You can't see it from the road, and Iggy takes us along the alley to this other place. You can tell how the door has been busted in and the lock broke. And we go into the dark hallway. The lights come on, and the first thing I notice is the perfume an old lady wears and the smell of cats. It ain't much, but the old bat who lives here took a greyhound to visit his sister for the holiday. Iggy says, he's trying to smile. The little room is warm and close feeling and the furniture is real old and saggy. There's a big old TV with a doily on the top, and an empty goldfish bowl, and piles of newspapers tied up neat with string, and a Bible on this little table by the TV. Also, there's this trick picture of Jesus on the wall, where his eyes keep following you, and you go cross-eyed looking at it. Ain't much worth taking, Iggy says. My father is looking around, making sure the curtains are closed. You think I'd steal from an old woman, he says. Iggy shakes his head. I sure don't. Never you mind, my father says. This will do in a pinch until we get started. I better get back to Loretta. You do that. My father watches the door shut behind Iggy, and he doesn't say anything. I'm just standing there in the middle of the room because I don't know what he wants me to do. Make yourself comfy, boy, he finally says. I'm going to check we have a back way out. I'm looking at the door we came in by, just looking, when all of a sudden he's there behind me, and I feel the cool air of him on the back of my neck. You wouldn't light out on me now, would you? No, sir, I wouldn't. Sit down, he says. We need to talk, man to man. I sit down in this old lady chair that's so soft I almost sink through to the floor, and I'm wondering what happened to the cats. Maybe she took them with her to visit her sister. Or maybe Iggy let them out and they can't get back in. He leans over me and puts his big hands on the arms of the chair, and he says, Now, your grandparents say you're nothing but a dysfunctional retard. But no kin of mine is a retard, and that's a fact. So first thing, you gotta start acting smart. Use your head. We've got a situation going here, boy. So the way to handle it, you just do exactly what I say, no matter what. Understood? Yes, sir. His hand shoves through my hair, and I can feel how strong he is, even though he doesn't hurt me. That's good, he says. That's real good. He goes into another room, and I can hear a door banging and stuff being moved around. And when he comes back... He's got this rope in his hands. A boy who doesn't know his own father might be dumb enough to run away, he says. We can't have that, can we? No, sir. No, sir, what? No, sir, we can't have that. What he does is tie up my feet and hands. Then he loops the end of the rope around his waist. I'm taking sack time while I can, he says. 
You're as smart as I think you are. You'll get some shut-eye, too. He turns out the light and lies down on the floor beside the chair with just his arm for a pillow. And for a long time, I can't tell whether he's asleep or pretending. Then I decide it doesn't matter. If I move, the rope will surely wake him. It seems like we're frozen inside that room, even though the air is warm and stuffy. A soft chair keeps a hold of me. I'm not strong enough to get up. My feet and hands are getting tingly where they're tied. And pretty soon I can't even keep my eyes open. I'm half asleep, dreaming a cat is in the other room, mewing for milk. And I'm still thinking about the cat when something tugs me. He's sitting there in the dark, so I can't see his face. And he says, wake up, sleepyhead. I better tell my own son a thing or two he needs to know about his own father. First thing, like I already said, I never killed anybody. I'm big like you're big, so folks assume things they shouldn't. You understand what I'm saying? Yes, sir, I do. Good. Now, the other thing is, the geezers you've been living with all these years, I bet they never gave you the presents I sent you. Did they? No, sir, they didn't. He shakes his head real sorrowful. That's a crime. Not giving a boy presents from his father. I suppose you didn't get the letters I sent. No. If they didn't give over the presents, they likely tore up the letters. Another crime against humanity. That's what that is. They hated me from the first sight, on account of my appearance, and because I wasn't good enough for their precious daughter. As if a man should be blamed for how fearsome or cruel he looks, when in fact he's truly a loving person inside, which I am. I can hardly see a sad movie without crying, and I'm not afraid to say so. There's just enough streetlight coming through the curtains so I can make out part of his face when he turns it. You can see where there's a wet spot on his cheek, and he brushes it away. I've been locked up like an animal, he says. Every single night, I cried myself to sleep, and that's a fact. Killer Kane, that's just an unkind nickname that hung on me. You know how kids can be mean in school. Mean as animals. It was like that. Only these weren't kids. They were adults who should know better. Except they're so ignorant and hateful, they believe the worst. His voice is sort of ragged, but you can't help but listen to him. You follow the words up and down, like you're riding through mountains, and you can't see to either side. All you can see is the road just ahead. A great injustice was done to me, boy, he says. What those people did, they stole my life. They took years away from me. Might as well have cut my heart out with a knife. That's how it was to lie awake each night and think about the injustice was done to me. They'd blame me for all the wrongs in the world, those people. By which I mean the geezers, her folks, that always hated me. And of course the police who failed to see the truth of the situation. He stops to rub away another stream of tears. There's no crying in his voice. You can't hear it there. But sure enough, the tears are all over his face, slick and shiny in the pale, pale light. I woke up just now, worrying that you might wonder why I never did mention her. Your mother. You might still be thinking the wrong way on that, and believe what they told you. You being such a tiny little thing when it happened. How could you know the truth of it? He gets up then, and he goes over by the TV set, far enough so the rope is tugging at me. Then he's back and he's got a book in his hands. You know what this is, boy? The Bible, I say. You can tell that in the dark, can you? That's fine. What I'm going to do, I'm putting my right hand down on this Bible, see? Yes, sir, I see. And I'm putting my other hand over my heart. Can you see that? Yes, sir, I can. That's good, boy. Now listen up. I, Kenneth David Kane, 
Do you swear by all that's holy that I did not murder this boy's mother? And if that isn't the truth, may God strike me dead. I'm waiting to see if something happens, and nothing does. The room is the same. It smells of old lady perfume and missing cats. And my hands and feet are still tied by a rope to his waist. Satisfied? He says. I want to answer him, but my throat closes up, and my tongue is so dry, I can hardly open my mouth. I keep thinking about how heavy his hand was on that Bible. I asked you a question, boy. Yes, sir, I say. I'm satisfied. He lies back down after that, and pretty soon he's breathing heavy again. I can't sleep, though. I just sit there, like a lump, until the sun comes up. Try not to think about the things I didn't want to remember.